There are two good reasons not to read the Bible. The first is because it's boring. And when it's boring, you just don't get anything out of it. And the second is because it's controversial or just crazy confusing. And the book of Leviticus is guilty of both. I suspect that Leviticus is one of the main reasons that folks falter on their commitment to read the Bible straight through from Genesis to Revelation. Oh yeah, Genesis starts out pretty well. There's that creation in the Garden of Eden, Noah's Ark with the beautiful rainbow, Father Abraham and Sarah give birth, and then the book of Exodus, it gets pretty interesting with Moses seeing a burning bush and then parting the Red Sea, setting the people free, and the bread falling from heaven when they're at their most desperate moment, and then comes Leviticus. What to do about Leviticus? Leviticus reads more like the manual to your dishwasher. Or maybe it's more like a list of rules on what to do if your oxen get loose from the barn or if your eczema gets super bad. Believe me when I tell you that the six verses we just read from Leviticus are the greatest hits of Leviticus. We read from a section that is called the Holiness Code, and actually, it was cutting edge for its day. Some even thought of it as revolutionary, because prior to this moment, folks who sought to follow God knew that in order to be close to God, what they had to do was to go to the temple, to go where God was. God lived physically in that sacred space, in the temple or in the tent. And so folks would load up their camels and travel to Jerusalem to follow the specific rules of ritual worship to be close to God. Because in worship, you could sense God's presence, God's holiness, God's power. It was there. But some of the priests thought it would be good to stretch God's holiness outside of the temple to include what happened in the folks' daily lives. And so they wrote down these rules to show how their everyday lives, whether they were out farming or in the kitchen cooking, could also be a way to be close to God, to honor God. And they set out specific rules of behavior that you could use even if you were at the neighborhood block party or sitting in your office looking at the financial ledgers or at home with your family in your most intimate relationships, that somehow God's holiness could be discovered there too in your daily activity a revolutionary idea to say that what mattered to God was not just how we worshiped, but also how we lived. Some of the rules were easy to follow, like don't ever wear cotton and wool in the same outfit. Or some of the rules became just mind-boggling, like how would you measure that? Like don't hate anyone of your kin in your heart. Well, how could anyone tell? This revolutionary rule attempted to govern not just externals, but the matters of passion and feeling and emotion. And God's holiness suddenly began to muddle in 
to the deep recesses of our hearts, love your neighbor as yourself. The boundaries of love being extended to shape our entire lives. Well, these days, we have mostly let those silly rules of Leviticus of the Holiness Code fall away, but we agree that this one that we read still captures the heart of the faith. Love your neighbor as yourself. And yet, even though we agree, it still seems hard to keep that one. I suspect that if we interviewed all of the world's two billion plus Christians, we would find that they disagree on thousands of things about the faith, and yet they would all agree, love your neighbor as yourself is the heart of the matter. And yet, we haven't seemed to master it as a people. You were here in Kansas City this week, so you know that within a few blocks of the church, a man was murdered on his own front porch at 8 a.m. after walking his kids to school. Love your neighbor as yourself. It was a violent week in Kansas City, not just here in our neighborhood, but throughout the Metroplex. And you probably also know that two teenagers committed suicide in Lee's Summit just recently. And you have read the world news, and so you know that a few weeks ago, four soldiers were patrolling the sub-Saharan African nation of Niger and they were fatally ambushed. And instead of honoring their noble service and praying for those people of Niger who were suffering from famine and human trafficking and horrible oppression, our politicians bicker. Even within our own inner circles of family and friends, we hurt a brother's feeling, the silent treatment comes up between us and a sister, and we find ourselves estranged from a spouse or a child. What would it mean for us to love neighbor as self within our own families, within Kansas City, within the whole world? A few hundred years after Leviticus, Jesus comes along and pushes the boundaries of holiness even further than Leviticus wrote it. Jesus tells them that the greatest commandment to love God and love neighbor as self is even wider than they had previously imagined because Jesus says, your neighbor is also that person who seems foreign to you, who seems radically different to you. We have grown accustomed within the church to thinking, oh, yeah, 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 Jesus, he loved the sinners. He loved those foreigners. He even loved people of different religions that we forget that his loving of those people and thinking of them as neighbors was so revolutionary that it got him crucified. Loving God and loving neighbor itself may sound sweet, but sometimes this real calling to love neighbor is enough to get oneself into deep trouble in modern life. The Christian story is full of stories of those who behaved boldly and acted bravely in order to spread love in God's name. Today, we remember one of those who was named Martin Luther. 
Martin Luther served as a Catholic priest, a monk, and a scholar in 16th century Germany. Like Jesus, Martin Luther risked speaking critically about the people of God. He claimed that they had lost the essence of their faith in God, of really loving one another. One of Luther's chief concerns was this practice of selling indulgences, which would guarantee your salvation. Your soul was safe for eternity after you went to the priest and purchased your way into heaven. And so on Halloween, on All Hallows Eve, October 31st, 1517, the controversial monk nailed to the door of the castle chapel in Wittenberg a list of 95 complaints. They called them his 95 theses. But they were really complaints against this common church practice of buying an indulgence from your local church pastor. One of those complaints, I believe it's complaint number 37, is listed at the top of your worship bulletin today. Luther's critique and challenge marked a pivotal moment in the spiritual revolution that we now call the Protestant Reformation. And because this other fellow named Gutenberg had recently invented the printing press, Martin Luther's controversial critique was spread across all of Europe. It was like Twitter. It was what set people abuzz. Now, Luther had his own flaws. And the Reformation caused a bit of harm as well as a bit of good. But the call that Luther made was for all of us to be deeply connected to God, the God who calls us to love one another. Luther didn't think that any of you needed a priest or a pastor in between you and God in order to be holy and loving. Luther never set out to divide the church. He only set out to reform our Christian practices so that we could be about this work of love that God called us into. Now, fast forward 400 years from the time of Martin Luther, from Wittenberg, Germany, move across the ocean to Atlanta, Georgia. There, a little boy is born to a Baptist minister named Michael King. Reverend Michael King is invited to go with some other pastors and study church history back in Europe. And so he goes to Germany and he hears the story of this controversial, radical, revolutionary voice named Martin Luther. He learned how Martin Luther wanted to call the church back to its faithful ways of reading the scripture, receiving God's grace, and living out God's call of love. This Baptist minister named Michael was so inspired by the example of Martin Luther that when he came home to Atlanta, he changed his own name from Michael King to Martin Luther King. And because he had named his son after himself, he also changed his son's name to Martin Luther King Jr. from Michael King. And you know Dr. Martin Luther 
King Jr.'s story, how he too launched a spiritual revolution where all would be known by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. What all reformers, what all revolutionaries want is to set us free to love neighbor as self. Martin Luther King, Martin Luther, Jesus, and even those priests who wrote the Holiness Code of Leviticus all point us back in the same direction. And so what about us? What would set our souls afire? What would set off that same kind of spiritual revolution within you and within me? Leviticus says in that first verse that we read this morning, it almost can be read as a throwaway verse, and yet it's pivotal. Leviticus says, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. The scriptures proclaim that you and I are able to love in the way that God loves because God has created each of us in God's very own image. God has planted within our flawed and fragile human lives the possibility that we really can love one another. Or as Barbara Brown Taylor puts it, God does not ask people to do what they cannot do. When Hurricane Harvey flooded Houston and Hurricane Irma, Irma knocked out the power lines across much of Florida, you and I were able to glimpse on our evening news how real people, ordinary folks, can reflect the holiness of God. Those young college students jumped in their high-powered water skiing boats and rushed to Houston to rescue people who were trapped in their homes by the floodwaters. And I noticed as those young guys loaded the rescue uh, evacuees into their boats, they didn't stop and say, who did you vote for in November? Did you vote at all? Do you have legal papers to be in this country? No, they welcomed those who were in danger into the boat in the same way that God welcomes the stranger. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. They did it without thinking. It was their very nature. And something similar unfolded in Florida when thousands of electrical linemen showed up to restore power across the state of Florida. And one of the electricians came down from doing his long, hard work, and he noticed this line of women snaking back almost the length of the sanctuary. And he said, what is this? And someone explained to him that the women were there to pick up the laundry for the linemen and take it and wash the clothes of a stranger and bring it back so that they could continue their kind and good work. Be holy, because God is holy. Revolutions, you see, they happen not because we're brave, not because we're bold. They happen because we are filled with God's own loving spirit. We become revolutionaries for the living Christ when we remember that God has placed within our own hearts, within our own lives, what we need to do the will of God. I remember one time I was in a museum with my friend Claudia. We were touring a special exhibit by Norman Rockwell. You know, simple, beautiful scenes of American life. Those magazine covers that made 
Norman Rockwell famous. And then we got to this one painting. It was huge. And Claudia stopped in front of it. And she began to cry. I didn't know the story. I didn't know the story that Claudia was looking at. It was the story of Ruby Bridges, that six-year-old girl who was escorted by federal marshals into her elementary school in New Orleans in 1960. But my friend Claudia was old enough to remember that historic day in America when a little girl with Claudia's skin color walked into an all-white school in America. It was a pivotal moment in school desegregation. By the end of the day, Little Ruby's school was emptied of all the white students whose parents had come to take them home. Only Ruby and the teacher, the one teacher who remained in her school for the rest of the year, sat there learning. The teacher and a child psychiatrist interviewed Ruby about her experience. They said, Ruby, we noticed as you were walking into school day after day, going past those who were picketing, those who were boycotting, those who were protesting, that your lips were moving. Ruby, who were you talking to? To God, she said. I'm praying for the people. Why are you doing that, Ruby? Well, because I wanted to pray for them. I, don't you think they need praying for, said Ruby? The psychiatrist pushed Ruby. Where did you learn that? She, Ruby said, from my mommy and my daddy and from the minister at our church. I pray every morning when I come to school and I pray every afternoon when I go home. But Ruby, those people, they're so mean to you. You must have some other feelings besides just wanting to pray for them. No, she said, I just keep praying for them and hoping that God will be good to them. I always pray the same thing. Please, dear God, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Love, you see, it comes from God. We are holy because God is holy. Through our relationship with God, we become God's presence in the world. But we need constant renewal in order to keep on loving our neighbor. Perhaps, as Mike mentioned in the offering, that Spiritual revolutions do not just come along every 500 years or so. Perhaps they come along every couple of years, or every year, or every Sunday, or every day. Every time we notice again that God roots within us the resemblance of God's very own holy nature. The poet and professor Christian Wyman writes about the summer that he and his wife finally took a break. Their work was too rigorous, and they decided to go away to Seattle and spend the whole summer there with their two-year-old daughters. They hired a daycare center to care for the little girls in the morning so that they could write, and then in the afternoons they would take their two-year-old daughters out on outings around the city, and it was a glorious summer. It was the first break that Professor Wyman had had in a decade, and it was eight months after he had undergone his bone marrow transplant. Every night, he would read the little girls a story, 
And then he would tuck them into bed, and then his wife would come in and kiss them goodnight as well. But as Professor Wyman left the room, he would say, I love you. And the little girls would say, I love you, Daddy. But one night, one of the little girls didn't respond. She just stared up at the ceiling. He said foolishly, do you love me too? A long moment passed. No, Daddy, I don't. Oh, Fiona, sweetie, I bet you do. No response. Well, I love you, Finn, and I'll see you in the morning. And he turned to walk out. And then Wyman said, as he began to turn away, he felt her little hand reach out, and she said dreamily without looking at her dad, I will love you in the summertime, Daddy. I will love you in the summertime. We are fragile. We are flawed. And we do not always love as we ought. But God keeps circling back. God's revolution never ends.